Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely. It has felt unbearable at times, living in the pandemic, but I think it's fair to say the next few months give us hope. That's because by now, most of us know someone who has been vaccinated against COVID-19, or soon will be. And hopefully this means gathering like we used to. Today where we live, we reflect on the one-year anniversary of Connecticut's pandemic lockdown this month. While COVID restrictions have been loosened, we shouldn't forget about the many residents, more than 7,000, who've died from causes related to COVID since last March. Many more have survived, but challenges remain. Coming up, we hear from Bethel, Connecticut resident Rob Stoll, who was hospitalized from COVID-19 in November. And we want to hear from you, too. What has this last year been like for you and your family? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to our show on Zoom, Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Coe was co-chair of the Governor's Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group. Dr. Coe, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's certainly amazing that it's been a year since we last talked about uh, initially about the COVID epidemic. That's right. We had you on uh, last March, and a lot of the questions from callers uh, were questions about what is uh, coronavirus. And we've learned so much in the last year. It has definitely been a hard one for many people in our community, not only in Connecticut, but across our country. I was uh, watching 60 Minutes the other day, and I heard that it was 14 months ago. It was a reminder that 14 months ago, SARS-CoV-2 was first discovered in China. When you look back at the last year, Dr. Ko, was it worse than you ever imagined? Yes, and I think it was, you know, of course, I think this is the consensus of all of us who've, who've lived through the COVID pandemic um, on many fronts. Uh, when we see, I mean, when we think about the number of cases and deaths worldwide, um, particularly for myself, um, you know, who lived and worked in Brazil for 15 years to see the tragedy that's unfolding at this moment with the um, with the current spread and um, you know epidemic that they're having now with more than 2,000 cases a day. But on a very personal front, um, you know, it's really the the sadness and and you know that uh, I think all of us felt whether it's with our families and friends and uh, but also as a physician uh, walking through. You know the 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 hospital and, and seeing people, um, you know, hospitalized, you know, suffering alone, in isolation, and dying alone in isolation, and and their families not being able to, to see their their loved ones, you know, in their final moments. Uh, those were the probably the most striking, you know, um, impression that I had over the last past year. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned uh, your work and your research uh, in Brazil. Before the pandemic, a lot of your research has focused on health problems that have emerged when we look at rapid urbanization and social inequity. This pandemic has certainly showcased the structural problems that is that still exist in our country, Dr. Ko. Yes, and uh, unfortunately, it um, you know it resonates from what we learned about uh, many of the infectious diseases that cause epidemic. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I've worked in the last 25 years in uh, urban slum communities in, in, in Brazil and seeing them suffer through multiple epidemics, whether it's uh, dengue, chikungunya, these, these uh, mosquito-borne diseases. Uh, the most recent was the Zika pandemic. Uh, and, and I think we've learned several things from those past experiences that we unfortunately didn't bring bring forth in this this pandemic and, and i think the most important one is is that you know the inequity of the impacts of the pandemic how the the poor segments and most vulnerable segments or of our populations uh, suffered the most and uh and the lack of resilience in in really um uh, addressing those those inequities that came out because of covid does it trouble you when we see, uh, even in our state, uh, how the vaccines have been distributed? We know that there is more demand than supply, although the supply has been increasing over the last uh, few weeks. But when you think about how uh, black and brown uh, members in our communities are more likely to die from COVID, and they're less likely to have received the vaccine in our state, Dr. Ko. Yeah, I think that's you know top on all, all our minds, uh, and I know that's top on the Department of Public Health and, and uh, certainly the governor's office um, about those uh, inequities and, and to ensure that this public health success story that vaccinations have have brought to us in the last year um, uh, leave no one behind and and that they they provide that benefit for all. Um, you know, I think. I, the, there, there are several priorities that need to be done. I think the first priority is to protect those that are most vulnerable for severe complications of COVID and um, and also from death or dying from COVID. And, and those certainly are, are the elderly and they're also certainly the people in our underserved communities where transmission rates have been high. And the answer to that is to get the vaccine out as quickly as possible. Uh, in parallel, so that's that's the importance of a horizontal program. But in parallel, we do need critically vertical programs that um, that get the vaccine to those people who are at the highest risk of being infected, of having transmission in communities and dying from those vaccines. And th those are particularly our large urban centers and the underserved populations within those urban centers. Again, you're hearing Dr. Albert Coe. He's a physician and epidemiologist at Yale School of Public Health. As we reflect on this last year in the pandemic, we also want to hear from you. Tell us about the moment that this pandemic upended your life. And how are you doing today? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, 
at where we live. Uh, we started talking about the uh, personal impact on so many, uh, Dr. Ko, and because you are a public health expert, uh, again, so much that was unknown uh, last January and February, and by the time the state was shutting down in March, a lot of fear and anxiety. Uh, so I wanted to just, just take us back to that time. And when did you realize that this was going to be bad? Yeah, so, so Lucy, um... I probably had a, um, uh, a head start in terms of the the insights about how you know how this um, pandemic would play out. Uh, I was on the uh, I am on the WHO Research and Development Blueprint Committee, and that committee is charged to to really um, to prepare uh, research and development responses to emergency situations such as the. And uh, the COVID pandemic. In that in that role, I remember a series or flurries of emails starting in the first week of January, <clears throat> convening the committee because of the outbreak in Wuhan. And uh, at that time, there were about fifty confirmed cases, but WHO was already coming up with plans to um, you know, on how to address this, whether it's through therapeutics or diagnostics or vaccines. Uh, but so that was in the beginning of January. I think by the time Lunar New Year came, which was, I believe, around January 25th, we pretty, had a pretty good idea that this was highly transmissible, that this just this wasn't just like a bad flu um, outbreak or a seasonal flu epidemic and that it was going to spread. Um, we've, we've already seen cases coming throughout the world. I think when they had the lockdown in Wuhan already, one million people had traveled from that city. So we knew that it was going to spread. And uh, when we look back at that time and, and, you know, coming, you know, one, exactly one year ago, you know, we were in a very difficult state. We had large, you know, evidence gaps. We didn't really know about the natural history of the disease, the complications. We didn't know, uh, first of all, how to test for the disease. Uh, we had, um, uh, uh, false starts in the United States with respect to getting up large-scale testing uh, when we got hit with the the pandemic uh, roughly a year ago. I'm glad that you mentioned a lot of the unknowns. Uh, even when we think about today, we won't leave our homes without a mask, right, in our purse, in our pocket. There's extra ones in the car. Uh, but the, even the guidance on masks uh, changed uh, early on. And we know hand washing was stressed. Uh, today, with, given all that has been studied and learned about the coronavirus, mostly transmitted uh, through the air, Dr. Ko? Yeah. So, so uh, Lucy, we did. We have learned a lot in this year, and an incredible, incredible amount of uh, evidence that has been, uh, you know, obtained uh, since that, you know, one year when we really were in a dearth. Uh, we didn't know, as you mentioned, whether face masks were. We didn't know how to you know, how it was transmitted. Um, to get to your question, uh, so we know that um, the trans it can be transmitted by what we call respiratory droplets, which, you know, are usually through so contact or direct contact within six feet. Uh, we also know that it can tra uh, get transmitted through aerosols, which travel much larger distances. I think we still don't know what's the relative contribution of whether it's respiratory droplets in shorter distances of requiring shorter distances of contact or 
aerosol with larger distances. But I, I think the consensus is, you know, right now that we most most of us feel that the major driver is respiratory um, droplets. You know, so this kind of close contact that you have, and that's important because we've also learned how to how to prevent COVID. Um, you know, and that is through face masks, through hand washing, through physical and social distancing. And uh, in in many places, including Connecticut, but certainly in countries like in countries in Asia, they they put those public health um, uh, evidence to to good use in 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 stymieing the the COVID uh, COVID transmission in epidemics. The vaccine the vaccines give a lot of us hope. Uh, when we think about masks, uh, how much longer do you think people should be expected to wear masks, Doctor Ko? Yeah, so there are a lot of um, uncertainties and variables in this. Uh, certainly, in everyone's mind, are the variants um, and what you know, what you know, what role that they will play in the, in the future. But as we're as we're going, you know, we're we're in a good position. We're going down on our numbers of cases and deaths, and we're getting certainly in Connecticut, which is one of the leading states in terms of vaccinations, getting good coverage or increasing coverage in our population. So the big question is, is how much coverage do we need to get in order to see those broad population level benefits of vaccination so we can start taking off our masks and getting back to normal? You know, my my, my you know, opinion or personal opinion is, is that it's still gonna take time. We're still gonna have to vaccinate large proportions of our population. We're gonna have to vaccinate our, our kids less than 16 years old to get that herd immunity effect. Uh, and that's likely not gonna happen until certainly until the vaccines are approved for uh, use in, in, in adolescents and in children. And it won't be, it, it goes back to, I think your earlier comment, Lucy, that it, you know we won't see those benefits or large population benefits unless we close the gaps and we, we make sure that there are no pockets of vulnerability people not receiving the vaccine throughout, throughout our population. And that's likely gonna take through the summer into the fall. So I, I see 2021 as being a period where we're transitioning, but we're still gonna to need to use face masks. I mentioned that you were a co-chair of the Governor's Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group. We know now, or committee, we know now that Connecticut is starting to loosen up some of these restrictions that have we've been under. Uh, capacity uh, limits are, uh, be, are being lessened for restaurants and, and, and gatherings. Do you think now is a good time for that, Dr. Ko? Well, the cer- certainly we're on a good trend. Uh, we're, we're coming down on the number of cases uh, that are occurring each day, the number of deaths have certainly dropped off. Um, we are getting vaccines to the most vulnerable populations, the elderly, uh, the people who are at most risk of, uh, of dying. So what we learned during the reopening Connecticut is that if you put in place strong testing, the flexibility to toggle up and toggle down on social distancing, um, you know, thirdly, to to have universal use of face masks, we can do a lot to get our uh, businesses, our schools open. I think the schools is a really good example of how we've been able, even in the height of the surge, the second surge we had, we kept them open and we kept them open safely. So, you know, the next several months, you know, opening up the, you know, 
uh, opening up our economy, our society certainly makes sense, but it has to be done cautiously. Uh, we have, you know, the introduction of the UK variant or the B117 variant. We know that's more transmissible. You know, there's evidence that the, that variant is more um, virulent and causes um, higher risks for death and hospitalizations. So we have to do this carefully. My guest today on Where We Live is Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. He was one of Governor Lamont's chief advisors during the pandemic. Today, we reflect on one year since Connecticut's pandemic lockdown began, and we want to hear from you, too. What has this last year been like for you and your family? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've learned a lot in the last year from ways to limit transmission of the coronavirus to the importance of public health. We've also learned a lot about our limits and the impact on each of us when we had to stay away and apart from family and friends. Today we're reflecting on the anniversary of Connecticut's pandemic shutdown, and we want to hear from you. What has this last year been like for you and your family? Are you feeling hopeful now? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut resident who was diagnosed with COVID back in November. Um, my guest right now on Zoom is Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. Uh, we started off uh, the conversation we had both uh, spoken uh, last March when this pandemic and the shutdown was just starting. When you look back, Dr. Coe, did you think that it would be as politicized as it became? Yeah, so that was, um, no, I didn't, um, uh, Lucy. Uh, I, you know, the, uh, and I think that has been one of the disappointments or one of the um, the pitfalls that we've um, we've. Um, passed through this last year. Uh, I, I don't think anyone could imagine that uh, wearing a face mask would be a political sta uh, statement or burning a face mask would turn out to be a political statement. And that real disconnect between the evidence, the science, the judgment on public health part and the, and the, um, and the, the politics. And, and we've seen this play out, not just only here in the United States, but you know, throughout the world. I go back to Brazil which is uh, really suffering from these issues of um, poor governance in response to um, the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic. I'd also you know, say that you know, the, the, the seeds of, of our inability to, to effectively react to this pandemic could certainly be, you know, certainly there was a contribution of the politicization and the policies that came out in the last year but I'd also go back that this was, you know, also due to chronic and persistent uh, underfunding of our of our public health um, institutions, uh, not only the CDC but also state and local you know, health departments. Um, this was really a reflection of of um, 
20 to 30 years of, of um, lack of funding and investment. Uh, and we've seen how other countries who have invested in their public health institutions have had to step up and have had um, much more robust uh, responses to the pandemic and effective responses to the pandemic than we have. Certainly, there's been a lot of uh, stimulus that uh, has been passed to help states, uh, including uh, with some of uh, the the money and resources needed to have more widespread testing and, of course, uh, outreach. Uh, are you worried that this will be a one-off, though, and once we're out of this pandemic, uh, that underfunding of public health will continue, Dr. Koh? Sure. So that's unfortunately, um, you know, as an infectious disease physician in public health, uh, researcher, we see this constantly, whether it was for Zika, or whether it was for MERS or the, the original SARS outbreak, that we have these waves of interest. Uh, certainly, that's been the case with Ebola, where we had vaccine candidates 20, 30 years ago, and they weren't developed until the last large uh, outbreak that happened in West Afri- Africa several years ago. So the, the, you know, the key issue is to not lose sight. Um, I think one thing that we've learned from the pandemic is that proactive things, you know, interventions and policies done proactively are much more effective than interventions and policies that are done reactively in the heat of the crisis. And I hope this is a lesson that we will take to heart, you know, both as, um, you know, both at the state level and the federal level, but also at the global level, because we certainly need multilateral, you know, uh, um, interventions to this problem. We, we live in a highly globalized world. So what we do here in the United States um, impacts what happens in other parts of the world and vice versa. There's been a lot of attention on the success that Connecticut has had in terms of the number of people that are being vaccinated right now or looking at the way uh, the safety guidelines were followed here compared uh, to other states. But when you look back, Dr. Ko, what are some areas where you think the state could have done better to, to serve uh, its residents? Yeah, so, so Lucia, let, let, let me start off with just reinforcing some of the things that I think worked. And uh, I think the policy of, of really, you know, getting at the meat, of, meat and potatoes of public health prevention, um, the emphasis on getting up testing. Um, a year ago, we were doing maybe 100, 200 tests a day. Um, for COVID. Now we're doing 50, 60, 70,000 tests a day for the state. So certainly that's gone a long way. Second of all, keeping public health policies and actions simple and, and straightforward. Um, face masks, the use of, um, of um, social distancing to keeping our schools open are, are, are really good examples of this. Uh, working off strengths you know, that, that we do have in the state um, have been the success stories. Uh, I think what, you know, going back and looking at the disappointments or the things that, that we didn't do as well as we, we would hope to, uh, that would certainly revolve around the issue of equity. Um, you know, that certainly plays front and center, uh, center of the problems, how, how we have in our, um, in our black and our Latino communities, mortality rates, hospitalization rates two or three times that of our, our non-Hispanic white, white populations. So, so the, the ability to, to not only focus and target effective interventions in those communities, but also to, to 
not lose track that 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 this is where we have to work for the long term. We have to ensure that the health status, this is a disease, COVID is a disease that affects people with underlying medical conditions and that we have to invest in the, in the health of, uh, of these communities, not just for the short term for COVID, but the long term is important. The second is the nursing home crisis. Mm. But I think that's something that Connecticut has really been, you know, front and first and forward in terms of its response. We saw a devastating first epidemic in our nursing homes. And we've seen in the second surge, really important mitigation or risk mitigation policies that were implemented. That's the intensive testing, controlling, creating these Connecticut um, COVID um, recovery facilities, several, several key interventions that really mitigated the, the harm that could have occurred back in November, December at the height of our second surge. And that's really to the credit of, of the Department of Public Health in Connecticut. When I mentioned the number of Connecticut residents who've uh, died from causes related to COVID, that's 7,765 alone uh, in our state. I'm looking at the latest data in front of me. That number is, is almost when you think about the people that might be listening now who have lost loved ones uh, that most likely would have been here if not for uh, this virus. And are you worried that people will forget about the the long-term consequences of all of this loss, Dr. Ko? Yeah, so I, 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 I would think not. Uh, I think um, all of us have known friends or family uh, whether we're whichever segment of the population that we live in. We, but we've, we've had friends and f family who either have died of COVID or been hospitalized with COVID, but also also people who have have suffered because of a lack of healthcare access due to COVID. I, I know personally my, my mother had cancer over the last year and couldn't get chemotherapy because of, because of COVID. So all of us can really, those, those stories resonate in I think all of the citizens of, of Connecticut. And I think that's gonna be the impetus for us to, to really reflect, you know, certainly the, the eyes are on, on, on getting people vaccinated and protecting us in the short term. But certainly, you know, the, there's going to be a need, there's going to be a need for a major rethinking about how we're giving healthcare, and how we're protecting, you know, our communities and population, um, in in the long term. And and I, you know, I, I would hope the impetus for that would be really the the massive loss that all of us have suffered in very personal as well as, um, very societal um, ways. I'm sorry to hear that it impacted your mother's treatment uh, uh, for cancer, uh, Dr. Ko. Um, so many of us have seen our neighbors, our friends, our family uh, work harder to stay connected. And do you think one of the, the positives is that will we be a more altruistic uh, society? Yeah, so, so I think you know, one thing that we did learn in, in, from COVID is, is that those communities those populations and countries that had investments in social capital, in building bridges between people, whether it's at the family or the community population level, those 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 countries, states, communities, they did better than than those that didn't, and 
That and so I think this is one of the I think the challenges that we have to think of. How do we build that social capital that links us uh, together? This plays out certainly for vaccination. Vaccination is is one of probably the most important public health tools that we have. Uh, we we have you know chronic problems with getting vaccinations out, uh, not only for influenza and childhood immunizations, but those are going to be challenges for for COVID. But and that requires social capital. That the fact that you know I'm vaccinated not only protects myself but protects others, and and certainly that's a lever that we need to learn how to pull better in the future. You're hearing Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health here on Where We Live. As we talk about this last year, it's hard to believe it's been one year. It's been it's felt longer at times. Uh, you can join us. We want to hear from you at 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. What stands out most to you in this last year? If you've lost a loved one, we're thinking about you. We hope you've gotten the support you've needed. Uh, many residents have also been diagnosed with COVID and have recovered, like Rob Stoll from Bethel, Connecticut. Rob joins us now on the phone. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's really a pleasure to be here. So tell me, first off, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, actually, considering uh, the uh, progress that I've made since I got home back in late November really was amazing, and uh, I've got a lot, of, quite a lot of people to thank for that. If I, if I may, really quickly, I'd just like to, you know, there's really a, a, a triumvirate of, of folks. My wife Kathleen, who was really my advocate, the entire team at Danbury Hospital, uh, from the housekeeping staff all the way up to the doctors and the nurses, especially the nurses. It's amazing what they do. And then I also have a just a very strong support system, which, which I know a lot of folks who have gone through this did not have, but I call them my warriors and uh, friends and neighbors who really supported us through all this. So I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. So you were diagnosed back in November. That must have been a very scary time. Can you tell us um, um, what was going on and when did you first learn that you had COVID? Yes, I learned on um, actually November 2nd, uh, right around the Halloween period, my daughter had taken ill a little bit and uh, nothing serious. She got tested and she was positive, but she turned out to be asymptomatic. We got her results on that Sunday after Halloween. My wife and I immediately went over and got tested at a uh, urgent care facility in Danbury. We got our results on that Tuesday. The, uh, the results were positive. Again, Kathleen was asymptomatic. I, on the other hand, uh, had started a, little, a couple days earlier getting a uh, high fever. And I actually, you know, went south rather rapidly to the point where on November 8th, uh, Kathleen finally called 911 to get an ambulance to, to take me over to Danbury Hospital. And I was, again, very, very high fever, 102, 103, 104, and uh, a lot of difficulty breathing. Uh, and quite frankly, I did not want to go to the hospital uh, we fought it tooth and nail. We called our uh, my doctor and 
you know, maybe we could get oxygen delivered to home that I could use it there. And, and they just flat out said, no, you, you have to go in. So that's that was the start of it. So I was admitted to the hospital on November 8th. And they brought me to their COVID floor at Danbury Hospital. And then after a couple of days, they actually moved me up to, they 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 call it the progressive care unit, but it's really intensive care for uh, COVID patients. What do you remember about the time that you were hospitalized, Rob? Uh, the the biggest thing that that I went through the first three or four days was just extreme loneliness and, de- and not I, I guess not depression, but just. Uh, being pretty despondent uh, because you are alone. You're in this room. The the nurses and the doctors, you know, they can't come in like they normally do. I mean, it takes them, you know, 15 to 20 minutes just to suit up to be able to come into your room. So you're pretty much alone. And, you know, thank goodness that we now, if, now have smartphones. Because I was able to, you know, call Kathleen and FaceTime with her. There were a couple of nights I was calling her at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, just, you know, honestly sobbing, uh, just being so sad uh, Mm -hmm. that you're not around people. And if I can come back to my group of warriors, uh, my friends and neighbors, they all, we... They delivered to me and mailed to me, you know, photos. I just asked for photos, and I put them up on my wall in my hospital room. So when I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I could see, you know, a bunch of friendly faces, you know, helping me through this. And it was, uh, it was, it was just the one thing that, that I really felt. And I know that I had it so much better than than many of my contemporaries on that floor who maybe did not have those supports. And uh, so, you know, in that respect, I consider myself incredibly fortunate. How long were you hospitalized before you got the all cleared that you're able to go home, Rob? Uh, I was in there about three weeks, I think a little bit more than three weeks. I came home just before Thanksgiving. Hmm. And how would you rate your physical health today? How has uh, COVID impacted you even months after you've been released from the hospital, Rob? Right now, I, I think I'm about maybe 98, 95, 98%. I still got some, some lung issues. Uh, you know, it's when I take a real deep breath, uh, I can feel that my lungs are still not back to where they were beforehand. Um, I do have a, a, well, I had a chronic cough, which kept me away from work. I only just started back at work a little more than a week ago. So I was out from work for about 126 days. And what was keeping me from coming back was this chronic, incessant cough. I would never have been able, uh, at the beginning of February, I could never have this conversation with you. I would get two words out and I would just start coughing and coughing incessantly. Mm. Um, and I've got an excellent uh, ENT physician, uh, if I can give him a plug, Dr. Yanagazawa uh, down in New Haven. Uh, he actually found 
what he considers to be a little offshoot of the virus, and there are so many of them, this little nodule that grew right adjacent to my vocal cords. And so whenever I spoke, that nodule irritated the vocal cords and, and initiated the whole coughing. So he put me on a medication, which is shrinking that, and it's worked very, very well. You mentioned you were out of work for 126 days. What was it like to go back, Rob? It was actually really nice. The, the, the folks where I work were just wonderful, welcoming me back. I kind of felt like a hero returning from war. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was just so nice. Even some of our regular customers at the store, you know, were asking, you know, hey, where were you? Um, so, yeah, it just it felt really, really good to get to get back because, you know, sitting at home for such a long time is, you know, it's not fun. Mm. Now, what about the vaccine? Have you received the vaccine? And I'm just curious about what your doctors told you as someone who's recovered from COVID. Yeah, my my docs told me that it was fine for me to get it uh, because it had been a significant num- period from the time where I had it. And of course, I still probably have some residual antibodies from that. I got my first uh, Moderna vaccine uh, just about three weeks ago, and I'm actually scheduled for my second dose this coming Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to quite a strong reaction. But you got through uh, being hospitalized, so I, I think you'll be okay, Rob. Yeah, I, 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 I'm like I say, I'm looking forward to, to feeling that because uh, one thing, uh, and I, I, if I may, and I don't know if Dr. Co is still on the line, but I really, really appreciate his comments, and I, I just want to echo what he had to say about um, you know people just continuing to to you know wear their masks, to practice social distancing, and to just practice you know proper hygiene because. You know, I still see every day, you know, folks that just just disregard this. And I don't think, I don't know if it's willful. I don't know if it's just ignorance. But, you know, people still need to take this seriously. We still have quite a long ways to go. Uh, but as Dr. Coe said, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And for once, it's not a train. Mm-hmm. Before I let you go, Rob, I had asked Dr. Coe if he thinks that once we get out of this pandemic, if it will lead to us being more altruistic. You mentioned all of the warriors that helped you get through uh, your illness. How do you feel about the next uh, few months and what this will mean to our country? Wow, that's uh, that's a big one. I, I do think people have learned from this, uh, but but Americans, we have a short memory. You know, we uh, we tend to forget a lot of things, and but you know, when anniversaries come up of things, we 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 tend to respond a little bit more. Uh, I'm I'm really hopeful that that people remember this. I mean, I I don't know anybody who doesn't know somebody who's been affected by this. Uh, I lost some very very good friends uh, at the beginning of this, and uh, I just think that that I'm hoping that people will take this to heart and just be kinder to each other from this whole thing. 
Well, Rob Stoll, again, a resident from Bethel, Connecticut, uh, we really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. And again, we're so glad to hear that you are getting better each day. Thank you, Lucy. I really appreciate those words. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Dr. Albert Coe will stay with us as we again reflect on this last year. We want to hear from you. Uh, Betty on Facebook writes, I want to extend my thanks to Dr. Coe for all his work during the pandemic. And I feel so fortunate to live in a state that recognizes the gravity of the pandemic and for the most part in a just evidence-based manner. We'll continue our conversation right after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, what will you do once you're vaccinated? The CDC says people who've been vaccinated can gather together and grandparents who got the shots can visit with grandchildren. On the next Where We Live, we talk about this latest guide, guidance from the CDC. And we want to hear from, about, from you about how uh, these uh, new words and guidance affect your interactions with relatives and friends. That's tomorrow. Now, today I've been speaking with Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health about this year anniversary uh, when Connecticut had to shut down because of the, the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Coe, I'm wondering, uh, before I ask you uh, your thoughts on moving forward, we heard from Rob Stoll, uh, who is doing well now. We're glad to hear it. Uh, we know that there are inequities in our healthcare system that existed long before the pandemic. And now we have all of these Americans uh, who have survived but may have long-term impacts from this virus. How will our health system accommodate them too? So, so Lucy, just to first, first to say, to thank uh, uh, Mr. Stull, you know, about his, um, his story and the compelling um, story that he he had about his uh, his his encounter with COVID, and he, he did raise you know many important points, and uh, and and I think one of them was you know what, what we're still trying to get our heads around is really how COVID affects people you know different people very differently. Uh, even in his own family, he had you know he had family members who were completely asymptomatic, um, and then he had a very severe case of COVID and required hospitalization. And fortunately, he's, he's done well and has been able to get back, back to work. Uh, one thing that is on our minds is, you know, what are the long-term effects of COVID? We know that people can have, such as uh, Mr. Stahl had, you know, chronic or persistent symptoms. Some, many times these can be debilitating. This is the COVID uh, long haulers. Uh, as as we're calling, we still need to know what proportion of all Americans we've had millions of Americans get infected, but actually, how what proportion of those people who had gotten COVID will have those long hauler type of symptoms and will be disabled because of that? So we can target effectively um, uh, our healthcare um, what do you call it uh, health healthcare interventions to that population. Uh, 
so that's still a big question out, out there. Uh, I think in terms of the long term about, you know, how this is going to help, I think there's two parts. Certainly, the, we're going to have to continue, unfortunately, to take care of COVID. COVID's not going to go away because of the high transmissibility. This is going to be what we call an endemic disease. But I think the bigger issue is that how can we get Americans and all Americans uh, in a better state of health so that they're going to be more resistant or resilient, not only against COVID, but all the other infections. We have 50, 60,000 Americans who die of influenza uh, each year. How do we protect them from, from, from influenza and improve their underlying health conditions uh, with that? I think this is, you know, obviously we've seen countries that have done it better than we have. Uh, and these are countries that many times have universal health coverage. Um, that don't leave those populations behind. You mentioned the flu, and we had talked about how we learned so much about how simply wearing a mask uh, can uh, prevent uh, so many of us from catching uh, COVID. But I'm wondering when we look at the, the flu season, which was basically not at all <laughs> these last few months, long term, looking at simple ways uh, to help prevent uh, sickness, uh, should mask be something that we incorporate uh, <laughs> in the future, <laughs> Dr. Ko? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think we've learned a lot, you know, through the, at least our own, you know, we, we, we had inklings of this from the Southern Hemisphere, from Australia, many countries in the Southern Hemisphere, how they went through their flu season with very few cases in, in, in settings where they, there was widespread fa face mask use. So you, you, can, you can see this two ways. One is that we've learned a lot about how to prevent respiratory diseases in general through this COVID. And we're gonna need to take those things forward, such as wearing masks and, and enforcing social distancing, especially in, in places where, you know, whether it's the healthcare setting or the workplace or, or the schools in order to reduce um, transmission. And we know that works. Uh, as you said, Lucy, I think we've only had a handful of cases of influenza in the last, um, you know, in, in our last winter season, uh, where we generally will see thousands of cases of, of, of influenza. The dark side of this is that you can really see how transmissible, uh, you know, COVID is and how even the where we had very little flu, we've had a large surge of, uh, of COVID despite those, those measures. We just have a couple of minutes left. What would you say to someone who's listening who still is hesitant about getting the vaccine? Yeah, so let, let me go back. And I, I think, you know, I, I think the words that Rob said, or Mr. Shaw said was, you know, kind of resonate with myself and I hopefully resonate with many of the listeners. I think the first thing he said that was important is that we can't forget. Uh, we had 10 times the number of Americans die from COVID than died in the, uh, in the uh, Viet Vietnam War. Um, we need to understand how we can memorialize that and ingrain that in, in how we're going to move, move forward. So that, that's certainly important. I think the second thing that uh, uh, Mr. Stahl said was that the, really the importance of getting vaccinated. And even if you're infected, um, someone like Rob, who got COVID, he's getting the vaccine now. You know that that's going to be important because you know he is going to get a boost in his immune response. So there is a benefit if people have already been infected that they get vaccinated and 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 continue to be protected against COVID. 
And second of all, is that what the state is doing, the state is working hard. And I, um, I, I know there are plans to really move up and come and do much better than what what um, the Biden administration, the Biden administration is is encouraging states by May 1st to to open um, vaccination to all segments of the population, except for above 16 years of age. And uh, and Connecticut is 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 going to probably be much well ahead of that that date in getting vaccinations uh, up and going. So again, we know vaccines work. We know they're safe and effective. And we know based on all our history that we had against polio, measles, that this can be a major success story. And, um, and certainly the state of Connecticut is investing in that heavily. Our guest uh, this hour, Dr. Albert Coe, a physician and epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. We really appreciate your time, Dr. Coe. And, and one thing that I've noticed uh, and when we think about how life has changed, you've had to do way more media interviews. So we appreciate your time and flexibility fitting this in. <laughs> well, this is a, a particularly uh, compelling and moving uh, uh, interview, given the fact that we were on together a year ago. And all of us, in, in, you know, your, yourself, myself, and all the listeners have gone through so much in this last year. And, um, and, and really, it's a show of appreciation also to the real heroes of this story, where the public health officials, both at our local and our state um, uh, government, but also the, the, the healthcare workers uh, that, who took care of people like, like Mr. St- Mr. Stahl. So they really deserve the big call out. Definitely. Dr. Albert Coe, thank you for your time today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Test Terrible. We'll be back tomorrow.